This is a throwdown, a showdown. Hell no, Rob Faye Nation can't slow down. It's gonna go. First offense. All the mix. Okay, party people in the house. You're about to witness something you've never witnessed before. Yeah. Hustle in the house. Yeah. Hustle in the house. Well, it's your Friday edition, your express edition of Sports Bar Radio. I am Rob Faye, joined by Vancouver Hockey Now writer Rob Simpson. Usually we get together on a Monday, but with all the action surrounding the Canucks, we had to bring you in twice, or lack thereof. Action. Put little, <laughs> hold up two hands and use the little quote marks when you say action because it's not the kind of action that we're used to having. Like Isn't this something like they were as hot as a pistol and then they squeezed in that one more game and now we're back to doing this, uh, you know, gameless for another week or so. I know that we said that Bruce Boudreau might have needed a little bit of a mini training camp, but I think he's getting that and then some. How do these Canucks stay focused? Oh, it's a good question. You know, they talked today after we found out that uh, the Ottawa game has been postponed. Number one is frustration. They're not going to come right out and tell the, the uh, media that they're pissed off, but I know they have to be. And, and Bo Horvat played it politically. He's, he's not only the captain, but he's also the team's player rep for the National Hockey League Players Association. Tyler Mott is the alternate he just used the old frustration term, but you know what? I'm, I'm writing a piece that's going to come out, I believe later today. I'm kind of researching it. I don't want to get into the technicalities of the, of the cap and, and hockey related revenue and all that stuff. Cause it generally puts people to sleep, but you know, the players have to pay back a lot of the lost revenue from all these COVID games and all the bubbles and all this nonsense and it just seems to me like they're the guys risking it. They're the guys that agreed to play. The National Hockey League weaseled out of the Olympics by using COVID as an excuse. And now they're backing games up. This is going to be seven games that have to be made up by the Vancouver Canucks. And I guess they're going to try to cram those into that Olympic window. And then they're also going to add one week to the end of the regular season. I mean, you're pushing it a little bit here. This is sarcastic when I say, Gee, COVID's been so predictable. Yeah, let's just go ahead and plan on playing seven extra games in February because everything will be fine by then, right? I get it, Can't postponing some of them, but when you get rid of a game on a Saturday night between two Canadian teams, that's the late game on Hockey Night in Canada, because it's 50% capacity instead of 100% capacity, I'd be pissed off if I'm a player, especially if I'm a Canuck. And this is your ownership in cahoots with the league backing up a game. You're a hot team. You want to play. You can get 50% revenue. You don't know what it's going to be like in a month. Play the hockey game for the good of your team, for the good of your organization, for the good of your winning streak. I don't like it. Yeah, a little frustrating. I can see how the players be frustrated, but it could also be frustrated from a fan's perspective. Oh, absolutely from a fan's perspective. I mean, would you rather have half of them frustrated or 100% of them frustrated? I mean, I, I guess you lose the money eventually anyway but why roll the dice like i mean it's one game at 50 percent. i mean the leafs just played a home game with no one in the building so i mean can't the canucks do just a, a one half game i mean we've already lost the new york islanders game from wednesday it's now seven i just think that they're pushing the envelope a little bit here assuming that everything's going to be honky dory and you know the, the province of british columbia is going to be have come around by then I, as I've said before, I'm confident that it is going to happen based on the behavior of Omicron and other countries like South Africa and Israel now have opened up their borders and said, come on in uh, because they kind of went through it first. So that's a good sign. But still, 
boy, that's making it an assumption. And there's a lot of hockey to make up. So we look at it at all these different sports and we see it in different leagues and everybody's using their own template. Like the NFL is just basically turning their back on it and pretending that it's not there. I sit here with the NHL and I think this is a fast paced sport where you've got to skate and you've got to move and you've got to hit. And then all of a sudden you're going to cram all of these games. in. I know that the teams did it on the quote unquote truncated schedule last season. What would the players association have as far as strength to go back to the NHL and say, not again, man, we're not doing this again. If you're going to put your player safety first and foremost, it's not good for the players. Yeah. The player safety seems to matter when, you know, when it's convenient and uh, it doesn't matter to work their, you know, what's off when it's okay to do that when you're making more money. Uh, I mean, that's almost kind of a real cynical way, but accurate way to look at it. Yeah. And you look at what this team has to go through now, they're going to have dead legs. They have an unbelievable road trip coming up. It would have been nice to, to hypothetically pick up two points against the Ottawa senators on Saturday before going to Florida, Tampa, Carolina, Washington, and Nashville. We're talking about essentially the four top teams in the East, four of the best teams in all of hockey. Carolina has the, the highest winning percentage, 758 right now. They've got a few games to make up. And the Nashville Predators are no sluffers at this point either, eight, one, and one in their last 10. So that entire gamut of five games. I mean, January could be the make or break month for the Vancouver Canucks. They come home to Florida, St. Louis, and Edmonton. So, I mean, this is really, by the end of January, you might have a really, really strong idea as to whether this team is still in playoff contention or not, because they're going to go head out on this road trip with dead legs, having not played a hockey game since New Year's Day. Well, we've seen Calgary and how they've handled it, and they've just been getting bombed. So, you know, Vancouver, it's like walking towards the firing squad. We'll see what they do. But again, you look around at the Pacific Division, just kind of broaden the perspective here. We talk about Calgary and, you know, they're still hanging around. They're, you know, they're they're playing good enough hockey to stay amongst the elite in the Pacific. But Edmonton is just like somebody has tied a 15-pound weight to the ankle and they've thrown him in the lake. What do you do if you're the Oilers right now? Well, they got Mike Smith back. So they were complaining about Miko Koskinen. They got their goalie back and they ended up losing again anyway. But of course, Connor McDavid is under COVID. So they, they're getting players. I mean, just adding insult to injury or adding injury to injury. They start to lose guys, their stars, uh, when they're in the midst of this long losing streak. What you do is you try to turn it around. I, I'm not going to suggest they fire Dave Tippett. That has obviously come up and everybody's looking at the formula that Vancouver has presented. Very similar. I mean, in terms of the doldrums and that's why the concept has come up, you know, it's worked here. So maybe it'll work there. And that's why people are starting to shout a little bit in Alberta. I don't see Vancouver Canucks fans empathizing as as NHL coaches often say when injuries occur and they get a rash of injuries, they always hear them say, no one's going to feel sorry for us. Well, guess what? nobody particularly in british columbia is feeling sorry for the edmonton oilers right now in fact it's kind of like haha been there done that but we're not doing it right now you guys are so good luck with that and um you know that's the way it should be that's what rivalries are all about if the canucks wouldn't have gotten bruce boudreau who would they have gotten was there ever a conversation about a plan B? Because we know that Francesco basically flew out to the front door of Bruce and wasn't taking no for an answer. But in the event that that no would have been solidified, did the Canucks, did you hear any rumblings of who else could have potentially taken that job? 
I only really had one name pop up and I only really had one name that I was thinking about. And that was Claude Julian, you know, which would have been a little more irony having coached the Boston Bruins to the Stanley cup title against the Vancouver Canucks back in 2011. But yeah, I heard, I think Claude's name was kind of bouncing around. He was involved with some hockey Canada business and there was a discussion as to whether or not that could be a possibility, but I mean, Gabby, uh, Bruce Boudreaux turned out to be a wonderful choice, obviously. On a number of fronts, just brought the complete temperature of the city down in a matter of days. All right, Rob, you are a man well-traveled. There's no doubt about that. You have spent time in many a different city and some pretty major markets. So I want to play a game with you, all right? Let me throw a city (laughs) at you. Let me throw you, I'm going to throw you a handful of cities. I want your first or coolest story from that city and take all the time you need but I'm going to throw you probably four or five cities and you tell me a story that just kind of rings true from there. Okay. First one, Chicago. Chicago. If you need aliases, I'm okay with that as well. No aliases. No, I'm not going to talk (laughs) about what happened after games. I'm going to talk about the (laughs) stuff that happened at the rink. So it's 1988. It's November. I'm on my way across the country, the United States with a friend, Tommy Towers, and we're going to go to California and then we're going to fly to Hawaii and then we're going to Australia. And I ended up out there for, in Australia for six months. On the way, we stopped and a, a friend of a mutual friend of both of ours is Bob Nagley, who is Bob Nagley III. Bob Nagley Jr. is his father. He founded, the, eventually bought, started the Minnesota Wild. But this is well before that. So Bob Nagley III lives in Chicago. We go to visit him. And he goes, hey, you guys want to go to the Blackhawks game tonight? I'm like, are you kidding me? Because I grew up going to the Olympia. And this was Chicago Stadium, the old barn. Had never been. Never went again. My one time. And it just so happened to be Tony Esposito and Glenn Hall night. They were toasting both players simultaneously. The numbers were going up. And the place was just overflowing with people. Hmm. And I just remember didn't could, you know, it was like partial sight was so packed. I remember becoming kind of one of the vomitoriums or whatever, little entryways, just barely hanging onto a seat and just absolutely practically in tears because I'm not a particularly patriotic person. Uh, but when it came to the national, I don't know if you're aware, obviously most people are aware that in Chicago, they cheer through the entire anthem. And it's pretty impressive at the United Center. But I'll tell you what, in the old Chicago Stadium, the freaking roof was coming off the barn every time. Madness, especially on Hall Esposito night. Yeah, it was. there wasn't really a dry eye. Like I just remember the hairs on my arms and the back of my neck standing up for the whole two minutes and the place going bonkers. And then the boys had their, their honor. And then the Blackhawks lost to the Vancouver Canucks, I believe, five to two. I hate those nights. I hate those nights when you don't win (laughs) as a player, as a player. I wonder if there's pressure knowing that that night's there and you got to go out and put on your best foot. I mean, and then all of a sudden you get bombed, but I mean, it happens. Okay. Madison square garden. Uh, boy, I've been been in that barn for a lot of different things and met a lot of cool people. I could just do some like brushes with greatness, but Letterman used to call it like celebrity brushes with greatness, but the one that really stands out and another emotional one, Matt Lochran, whose name's on the Stanley Cup as the team operations guy from 1994, was no longer working with the club. We were, we were both working in the minor leagues together. Um, and I was actually doing a TV show for for Leafs TV at the time as well. Uh, first game after 9-11. 
uh, Buffalo Sabres and New York Rangers come out, uh, both teams with the diagonal New York spelled out across their chest, uh, warm-ups. Uh, Messier ends up with the fire captain's helmet on. John Davidson comes out and gives a speech. Every time cops or firemen walk by on the concourse, people got up and gave him a stand. I'm getting a little bit perclept thinking about this right now, to be honest. It's hard to actually describe it. And being, you know, we have to be manly men, right, Roberto? It's like we have to be tough and not show these things. So it was like a pineapple in your throat for essentially a 30-minute pregame and trying not to cry. And it was just unbelievable, uh, the atmosphere in that building uh, when the Rangers came back to play hockey for the first time after uh, the Trade Center. Were you in New York for 9-11? No, I was in South Jersey at the time. I was driving, I was doing minor league hockey on the side, play-by-play, and uh, running around doing that TV show. And I was actually looking to buy a piece of property and was on the way to meet this lady near Wilmington, Delaware, about a property and was listening to a rock and roll station and the guy's describing it. And I thought it was like a joke. I thought it was a hoax. But as I turned onto the Jersey Turnpike, you know, those, they're like, in some highways, there's these flashing boards that say, tune to this frequency for an emergency announcement if this light is flashing. And those lights never flash, never flash. But on the Jersey Turnpike that day, those signs were all flashing, tuned to this frequency for a special message. And New York City was closed. It was like, do not proceed to New York City because you're not coming in. It's shut down. You know, there's always this old adage that Jersey guys hate New Yorkers and New Yorkers hate New Jersey guys. But there were a bunch of, I, I remember one of the stories that got me kind of teary eyed was how many people from Jersey found a way across the bridge to do whatever they could to try and help the people in New York because the proximity of it is actually not that far apart. And uh, as much hatred as there is between those two jurisdictions, um, just seeing how quickly they came together with something else. That a, and you always think from a sports perspective, George Bush going into the Yankee Stadium, the crowd chanting USA. I don't know if many people realize that, but the Mark Messier firefighter's helmet was a really, really big moment in that city, was it not? Oh, absolutely. It was, a, you know, it was just symbolic of the camaraderie and, and you know, the, kind of that whole captain concept. It, it just kind of, it just blew out. It, it, it really tied together the first responders and, and the workmanlike attitude of hockey players. And it was kind of neat that way. Um, I had, I had lived in the city previous to, to that and would live in the city later as well. And I had a, many, many friends that lived in the city and worked in the city when, the, when that happened. I remember one guy who was called away for a meeting and uh, worked for the company, the investment firm that, that basically the plane hit the office and wiped them out. Uh, another guy who's him and his wife were walking across two separate bridges and didn't know whether they were alive or not. They couldn't get cell service. So one's going across the Brooklyn bridge. One's walking across the George Washington bridge. They have no idea what the hell's going on. On a, uh, on a brighter note, when it comes to New York, I will say I went there for the first time two years ago, my first time in my whole life. I couldn't believe it took me to my mid forties to finally go And, you know, Gretzky will say, oh, you got to play at least one time in this city. And everybody says it's the Mecca. And that's true. I went with my wife. We were in the cab. We had a lot of energy. We were juiced up. I mean, the cab's going five miles an hour all the way to our destination. But 
we said, what should we do tonight? And he says, oh, just go to a comedy club, something, you know, easy, just kind of break in. So we went to a comedy club and we had to wait three shows to finally get in. You basically just put your name on a list and hope you get in. And if you don't make the seven, you make the eight. If you don't make the eight, you make the nine. Yeah. So sure enough, we got the last show, the 1030 special. They said it's a little more risque, but you know what? That's for the late guys. It ended up being Sarah Silverman and Chris nice. Rock. I just remember looking at my wife thinking, this is a regular Thursday night. Right. Like we paid 25 bucks to get into this place. It was unbelievable. And they came in, they did their gimmicks. Chris Rock had his napkin out. He says, I'm just going to try some stuff. Tell me what you think. Unbelievable. And, and to think that that just happens on the regular New York City. I can see why players and families would want at least one shot in that city. Were you down in the village? You must have been down. Yeah, there. I was in the village. We did $4 shots across the street before we went in. It was, <laughs> it was awesome. We were ready to ride. And they packed us in like sardines, man, just before COVID. You'd love my local down that way. I had a local, I, even though I didn't live in that neighborhood, I frequented parts of it and had pals. Right by NYU, there's an unbelievable place that, uh, yeah, anyway. So uh, two more for you here. Montreal. Montreal's memorable. Um, every time you go in there, because every game's a rock concert, I remember it somewhat uh, distinctly because my last telecast, my last game on television for the Boston Bruins was at the Bell Center. And I knew it was going to be my last. And it was the playoffs. And at the Bell Center, when you leave the bench, when you're done doing your pregame hit, and this is basically the same job Dan Murphy has for the Vancouver Canucks, although I think we did a little bit more running around down at ice level. I finished the pregame interview, the hit on the bench with a player. And then when the warmups ended, you have to walk across the ice at the corner. And I just remember walking across the ice, looking around. Cause I'd been in that building for some playoff games. I'd been in that building for, it's just always great. And uh, you know, run into people like Yvonne Cornway, you know, stuff like that. And just remember taking us, taking a little longer to walk across the ice, knowing that that was going to be it. And I was just kind of looking up at the banners and kind of looking around and then exited. And then that was it. Good city though, isn't it? Montreal. Great city. Never hard to find a bad meal. And uh, the debauchery is, is uh, prevalent. <laughs> uh, your laugh will say it all. Toronto hit me with a good Toronto one. Toronto. I could hit you with a bunch. I'll hit you with two quickies. How about that? I was at Done. the game when Jeremy Roenick jumps off the bench to replace was it Kapanen? I believe it's Kasperi's dad or uncle dad. Gets knocked silly. Roenick jumps off the bench for the Flyers and, and literally five seconds, four seconds later, three seconds later, picks up a puck down the right wing and, and rips one home for an overtime winner. That was unbelievable. But the one story that always I always remember is around that same time period, early 2000s, you had great battles of Ontario. And the Leafs would always prevail over the Senators in the postseason. And the one time in this one game, Alfredson, and people might remember this, he comes over, it's a right wing corner in the offensive zone for the Senators, and he cross checks Darcy Tucker into the boards. Tucker goes face first, and with Tucker's reputation, he's not necessarily going to get any extra love from the men wearing the orange bands, that's for sure. Face <laughs> first into the boards, pretty gratuitous hit. Like even back then, when standards were a little looser, would have been called. He goes down, Alfredson picks up the puck, turns around, skates in and rip, rips home what I believe ended up being the game winner. Fast forward, and I had a friend visiting from out of town. I had him in the press box. We're in the press box. We walk down the hall 
And Ken Dryden, then the president of the Toronto Maple Leafs, is waiting outside the doorway of the booth where the NHL supervisor is working, officials. No kidding. His face is purple with rage. The door opens and Ken Dryden lays into these guys and never used a single expletive. And that was the thing that stood out is me and my buddy were like, he never said F or S or he just like, that's him. That's a one in a million nowadays. Managed to, in a very angry, fired up, like just rage, managed to spell out his argument and his, his disgust like a lawyer without, uh, with the raised voice to some extent, without using one expletive. It was like, damn, like that was pretty impressive. (laughs) (laughs) And they just, you know, whatever. And just, this just the hit and the result and the hatred between the two teams and the battle of Ontario. And then to watch Kenny Dryden, uh, who I had done like some shtick with, I think like earlier that year on one of the shows I was shooting. So it was kind of neat, but anyway, that that's uh, one of many Toronto memories. Last one for you. When was the first time, and you have to go back to the memory here when you're a younger buck, when was the first time you looked around and you're like, I'm in the NHL. I'm basically covering the NHL. Like when I covered the Vancouver Grizzlies from a basketball perspective, I mean, I was just a young guy just trying to make it into the scrum. But when I look back, I'm like, man, I was in a scrum that had Kobe, that had Michael, that had Shaq, that had all of them. But it never hit me for years. When was the first moment when you realized that you got to be a part of something pretty special? I got a little flavor of it when I was basically 16 years old because I had a high school radio station and then I got an internship and got paid under the table like 10 bucks a night to go get sound post game at the Joe Lewis arena. And believe it or not, I mean, it's unbelievable. Like that, that Blackhawks game with, with, with uh, Glenn Hall, Antonio Spizzito was the Vancouver Canucks. The very first game I ever covered in the national hockey league 40 years ago, was the Detroit Red Wings and the Vancouver Canucks. And I have the cassette. I have the audio. I still have it. Um, I play, I listened to it about two months ago. Corrado Mikalev, French-Canadian goalie for the uh, Red Wings postgame. He mentioned Stan Schmiel. Like he's talking about Stan Schmiel in this postgame. Um, but at that point, I was just a kid. I knew I still had to go to, I was going to go to university. So I was going to be coming, going from being paid to being an amateur again to then whatever happened. So I, I didn't really feel like I was in there. I would say um, many years later, especially when, I think when I was doing the Leafs TV stuff and um, started talking to Hall of Famers and interviewing Hall of Famers on the, you know, traveling around all over the North America and going to games. And that was really like when it kicked in. Rob Simpson, I feel like there's a book in you. Well, I've written five, and there's so then there's a sixth in you, <laughs> but there's uh, the, but there's only one that kind of is it that genre. So there there probably will be a follow up. We'll see what happens. Are you going out to Abbotsford tonight to watch the game? I think I am. I'm trying to make arrangements. Is that your first time to the building when you go out there? No, no, I was there for training camp for the okay. uh, Canucks. I saw some preseason games, and actually, shikes, I was there every day for a while. I think it's a great venue. I think I like Abbotsford it. really lucked out. Yeah, good board, good seats, good venue, clean. Yeah, I'm a fan. I think they wish their record was a little bit better. 
Yeah, that's what happens when you don't have a lot of stuff in the farm system. But uh, yeah. I digress. Yeah. Rob Simpson, let's do this again on Monday. All right, my friend. Yeah, we should have stuff to talk about. The uh, The team should be uh, relocated to Florida by then. Okay. Good stuff. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna hold you to that one. No, they're gonna be there. Oh, well, no, they're gonna be there. They're 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 leaving. They're flying Sunday. Oh, okay. Well, when you say relocated in the world sorry, of sports, sorry, sorry. I mean re- physically relocated, as in flying there, get acclimated to the East Coast, practice on Monday, and then they got a game on Tuesday night. Man, they probably can't get out of here fast enough. Ugh. With the with Saturday night off, that just blows. Get him out tonight. Why not? I too. I'd be like, you know what? Go Saturday. Go have a team dinner. Yep. Down in Tampa and just take it easy, man. I agree. Robert, let's do it again soon. Cheers. Thank you, Robert. You're listening to Sports Bar Radio with Rob Fay, brought to you by Equity Guru. Equity Guru, investment information for millennials and madmen.